0: Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Today, I'm talking with Professor Eric Goldman about a federal law known as Section 230.
1: I'm a professor of law and associate dean for research at Santa Clara University School of Law, which is located in the heart of the Silicon Valley.
0: He's also the co-director of the High Tech Law Institute and a supervisor of the Privacy Law Certificate Program. Professor Goldman has been working on internet law issues for nearly 30 years and is the author of a leading book on internet law that is used in classes around the country. He also runs the Technology and Marketing Law blog, which is one of the best sources for current information about recent developments in internet law. And he is also the leading scholar in emoji law, which he and I joke a bit about in our discussion, but in all seriousness, actually offers a fascinating perspective on challenging and timeless legal questions. Our discussion today covers quite a range of topics, from what internet law is as a legal field and how that field is changing over time to a bit on, you got it, emoji law. But our main focus is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. At one time, Section 230 was a relatively obscure law enacted as part of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. It empowered, but didn't require, online platforms to moderate their users' speech and clarifying existing law by making clear that platforms don't assume liability for their users' speech when they do elect to moderate it. In recent years, Section 230 has become very controversial. And controversial in a way that has had a sharp political divide. In our conversation, Professor Goldman walks us through the background on Section 230 and some of this controversy, and then we turn to four cases that the United States Supreme Court is likely to decide in its current term. Professor Goldman helps to outline the issues that are going to be before the court in these cases, how the court might decide those issues, and what those decisions might mean for the future of the internet. Our discussion is a few minutes longer than usual because we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's log in and see what information content Professor Goldman has to provide for us. We have an active Supreme Court term coming up. The Supreme Court is hearing a couple of cases about internet law, and I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on these. Uh, I think that the way that I framed it to you in email was, is the Supreme Court going to break the internet? Uh, And we'll get to perhaps that question. But for folks who might not have thought of what is internet law before, can you just give us the capsule summary of what is this thing that you and I think about that we call internet law?
1: Well, it used to be that internet law was pretty discreet from things that people would run into in law school. It really related to how people were engaging with each other over a digital network. So we can think about people logging onto the internet, consuming content or engaging with services, and then all the legal liability that can flow from that, whether that's fraud uh, where someone's losing money, or whether that's the control over a person's privacy, or whether it's things like a uh, liability for what people are saying to each other. Nowadays, internet law has become uh, less concrete or separate from the rest of our curriculum because so many of the cases that we're running to are involving people engaging in online. There's really a blurring of the online and the offline. So internet law in some ways is a bit of an anachronism. It, it contemplates a time when it was more clearly discrete from the rest of the curriculum.
0: Yeah, that that's something that I've puzzled over a bit. And I think a couple of years ago, I might've asked you about this actually. Um, whether internet law is now just law and whether all laws should, I mean, coming from the law school perspective, teaching law school classes, whether it's possible to have a class that doesn't consider the internet aspects of tort law or property or corporations or what, whatever the area of law is.
1: Yeah, increasingly, I'm getting students in my internet law class who've studied one or more of the cases that I'm teaching because it crossed over to the standard doctrinal treatment in some other class. So, for example, when I teach contracts, it's not uncommon that the principal case I use for contracts is a case that students have already encountered in their first year contract class.
0: Yeah, so I guess one of the core areas of what we think of as Internet law is still pretty coherent, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Before we turn to that, are are there other really prototypically unique internet law topics that you think about?
1: At a very granular level, there's all kinds of really interesting corners of internet law. And I'll give you an example. Things like the allocation of domain names or the allocation of IP addresses. There's some very arcane rules and possible laws that govern something like that. But a classic internet law doctrine is trespass of chattels, um, involving when can you use somebody else's servers that are connected to the network? which is actually an incredibly ancient doctrine. It's just nowadays, you've never run into it except in the internet context. So I'm always excited to teach something like trespass to channels because it's something that my students might've encountered, but they had no idea why they cared. And then I can show them, actually, we care a lot about that question on the internet.
0: Yeah, so there's a famous case that I expect uh, we both teach that gets to this question of, is a computer server a thing or is it a place? So if I hack into your server or if I uh, use your server to send unwanted email addresses, am I somehow going to a place, the Internet, or is this just a server sitting in a rack in some office somewhere? And it, it matters a great deal because there are different doctrines, trespass to land if it's a place, trespass to chattels or something called conversion. And how we classify and how we use our metaphors is going to affect what law we might apply or how we develop the law in this area.
1: It's one of the great old Internet law questions. Is the Internet a physical place and does it matter? And Trespass the Childs is a good example where... As you point out, if it's real property, we're going to have a different set of rules possibly than we do if it's treated as a chattel.
0: And I I have to ask, you are the preeminent scholar of many fields, uh, many topics. One of them is certainly emoji law. This is going the the opposite direction, perhaps from really old doctrine to new developments in language. What's uh, your capsule summary or what's the emoji version of emoji law?
1: Well, it doesn't really translate to podcasts to try to talk about the emoji version. Um, We could name the emojis in sequence, but there's something that I think gets lost in that equation. But emoji law is actually a great encapsulation of Internet law. It's a good example of one of these corners when you get down to a more granular level. Is there something unique, special or different about the ways that emojis communicate that require different set of legal principles than other forms of non-textual communication? things like vocal inflection or hand gestures or uh, facial expressions or even body language. These are all ways in which we communicate that the law accommodates, but maybe incompletely. And emojis are another kind of example of ways that we talk to each other that the law has to now accommodate. The main point that I teach when I talk about emoji law is that there are some things that are unique, special, or different about. The most obvious being that the emoji that I see on my phone if I send a message might be different than the emoji that a person sees on their phone when they receive that message. And we might not know that that substitution has taken place. So there's a bunch of misunderstandings that can occur because of the fact that emojis look different in different settings and people don't realize that.
0: So we are nearing the end of the semester. And one of the things I uh, discussed with my own students today is how the law is changing and how the and this is just torts a foundational first year class that every student takes and how one of the challenges of their careers is going to be understanding how technology is changing these long-standing doctrines and i've really approached the class as how the law changes over time and how the law develops as society and the technologies that we as a society rely on uh, develop. When you think about and when you teach internet law, are you trying to do something similar with the field? Or since it is so quickly moving and updating and changing in real time, is it uh, enough to just try and keep track of what is the current doctrine and how do we teach students what is the law today and it will be different tomorrow, but let's just figure out what it is today.
1: Uh, Yeah, I definitely approach my internet law class as a law and technology class where technology and the law are both constantly evolving. And lawyers in the Silicon Valley have to be able to advise clients when there's uncertainty on the law and possibly on the facts. That's just a fact of life in the Silicon Valley. That's what we do. And the good lawyers know how to do that really, really well. So my job as a teacher is to try and scoot students up that learning curve to figure out you don't always have all the information you need. You can't always say with confidence what the law is, and yet you still have to make a recommendation. So a lot of what we do is try to anticipate not only where things are today, which is hard enough, but to think about... What are the policy dynamics? What are the moral norms? What are the social dynamics? And what is the technology doing that might change the answer when you're actually tested? I don't
0: think I can teach that perfectly, but it's absolutely a core part of the curriculum. How has teaching internet law changed over the years that you've been teaching it? And when I say that, I don't mean the, the subject matter, but the student experience and the pedagogical experience working with the students.
1: Well, actually, I do want to mention the subject matter because that's related to your last question as well. You know, how do we teach the class when the law is changing so rapidly? The reality is that I haven't done a lot of structural updates to my casebook in in a few years. Um, A number of the cases now are 10 years plus. They haven't changed in a while. And I think that this is the last year I'm going to say that because I expect by the uh, next year, I may have to revamp the entire casebook based on what we're going to discuss in the rest of our podcast. So, we're at the cusp of another major iteration of Internet law after actually having a fairly calm period of time. The main change that I see outside of the subject matter is the fact that the students are different. They're all digital natives at this point. They're all consuming the Internet on a regular basis. And here's the the real payoff. So many of the students come to the class cynical about the Internet as a technology. It's a really odd phenomenon because we would think that digital natives would love the internet. It's an integral part of their lives. But in fact, many digital natives hate the internet. They have a negative view. And so I'm actually teaching against that. I'm trying to come in and say, hey, remember there's some good things about this that are worth fighting for. When they're coming with an assumption, let's burn it all down. So it's really changed the way I teach because I can no longer presume that the students at all think Uh, the way I do about the value of the internet. I have to assume now they're actually coming in adversarial, 180 degree opposite position on the topic, and then
0: I'm fighting against
1: that. I'm curious, are you having that experience too? Uh,
0: Yeah, in some ways, very similar sort of experience. Uh, Several years ago, I very much remember having to really engage the students and push the students to think about the dangerous uh, and problematic parts of the internet. I I remember in particular teaching during the Arab Spring when the internet was bringing down oppressive governments and regimes and everyone was, wow, this is really great. This is really cool. And yeah, but let's look at some of the problematic areas and challenges that the law has with these areas. And just today, not even in my internet law class, um, I was talking to my uh, first year students I'm doing a capsule introduction to um, privacy torts and defamation law. And the examples that the students wanted to go to were things like doxing and swatting. They were really interested in these really contemporary negative uses of communications technology. And it it was remarkable to me that that's right where they went to. So that definitely. And I'll also say, not in my internet teaching, but in my telecommunications class, I've done the same thing. Uh, the authors of my casebook, the teaching materials I use, a few years ago, they started trying to make the book about the internet instead of telecommunications. And I've stuck with the version of the book that's now six or seven years old, and I, I've updated it with some additional stuff. But the foundational principles, you have to understand them and foundational questions, you lose so much when you're just trying to chase the law and not focusing on what are really the underlying issues that are much more timeless.
1: Well, it's also a good point. Another thing that's changed is a lot of the students don't know about some of the older technologies. We've been doing a rewatch of uh, Seinfeld and the kids are just baffled by things like call waiting or you know the ability to dial back a phone number or the last episode we just watched was about speed dialing. And the kids are like, what is that? Why would I care? And they don't even know how much of an advance that was at the time. And now it's uh, passe. So, um, you know, when it comes to the internet, there's all these things that people used to be doing. And I'll just give an example Usenet. It was a foundational technology from a legal standpoint, a lot of really interesting Usenet law cases. But the, the students would never have any idea to think about Usenet nowadays.
0: Yeah, so Usenet was a messaging system, basically a, a messaging board that was distributed across many servers. So it was kind of the the original Reddit, you could say, for, I guess, R- Reddit folks still know. Um, so It's uh, actually was, more
1: like the original Mastodon, I think. It yeah, was, uh, yeah. Mastodon,
0: yeah. pre-Mastodon. The way that was federated around, yep. Well, I'm going to transition us to talking about the Supreme Court and do so with an unfortunate trope that I, I think is less true, but it might still be more true. Let's talk about changing the law and folks who don't understand how the technology works. Um, so... Uh, the uh, Supreme Court has a, a few cases that are relevant to Internet law in our areas generally. The big ones are certainly relating to Section 230, or when I say big, the closest to the sort of stuff that you and I work on. There are a few other cases I expect you might want to talk about, but I- I'm going to just leave that to you, Eric, to let me know what cases you want to talk about. But I'll ask you to just kind of cue up the discussion. What is the Supreme Court thinking about this term that's relevant to these areas? Yeah, and before I get that, I do want to just
1: note this, uh, this stereotype that the Supreme Court justices are out of touch with the technology. And I think that there's some truth to that. But nowadays, we are struggling with judges who are making what might be considered to be bad faith statements of the facts or the law. And so it's become increasingly difficult to understand are the justices not getting it or they're getting it just fine. They've just decided to misportray the situation in order to advance their narrative. And so the Supreme Court streaming of the Internet very much runs the risk that we're going to get statements of fact that are not actually based on cluelessness. They're based on malice against uh, the uh, truth. Um, well, we, we know so what Section I'm,
0: 230 says about uh, a maliciously posted content.
1: Well, uh, they're, they're liable for it, except that the Supreme Court's li- justices are liable for nothing. They have no rules that govern their behavior, apparently. So there are four Supreme Court cases that I'm interested in, and one of them hasn't been appealed to Supreme Court yet. But let me enumerate them, and then we'll figure out how you want to structure the conversation. The case that everyone is paying attention to, the one with the greatest potential impact for the internet, is the Gonzalez versus Google case, which involves... Well, we'll talk about it. But it involves a square question about the scope of Section 230, and the Supreme Court's answer on that could very well dictate how big or how small Section 230 ends up being in practice. Uh, There's a parallel case, which I'm not good at pronunciation. I think it's something like Tumna, and that is a a Tumna versus Twitter. That's another case that involves a very similar set of facts. That case is a statutory interpretation case. It involves the Anti-Terrorist Act. Um, and how it might apply to Internet services. So that case has potentially less scope only because it's, it's interpreting a different statute, not as broadly applicable as Section 230. But if the Supreme Court reaches a weird result there, that also has a significant impact. There are then two related cases that are on a different thread that don't directly involve Section 230, and yet the resolution of those cases might very well impact Section 230 structurally. There's an appeal that's been filed in the NetChoice versus Florida case, which involves a law that Florida passed in 2021 called the Social Media Censorship Law. And I'm sure we'll talk about the details of that. There's a lot going on in that law. And then Texas passed a similar law, also in 2021, also called Social Media Censorship Law. And that ruling will be appealed from the Fifth Circuit. And it is possible. And my hope is that those cases will be combined together. And so we'll have effectively really two cases. There's going to be very similar parallel treatment with the Gonzales and Tomna cases. And then there should be parallel decision-making with the two net choice cases, the one from the 11th Circuit involving Florida and the one from the Fifth Circuit involving Texas.
0: Yeah. So let's uh, start with the Gonzales and Tomna cases. And You and I just throw around Section 230 like it's nothing because it's so important to us. It's the opposite of nothing. Um, But if you could just give the capsule explanation of uh, what has Section 230 been to date? Uh,
1: Section 230 says, to summarize very efficiently, that websites aren't liable for third-party content. Uh, And it's this basic premise that's become the foundation of our modern internet that allows us to talk to each other as opposed to somebody talking to us. So in cases involving social media, for example, the idea is that the social media creates a structure that allows people to talk to each other, and the social media venue isn't liable for the conversations that then ensue. Um, So however people are talking to each other, whatever terrible things they're saying or doing to each other, the idea, as Section 2 says, the services aren't liable for that it still leaves open the possibility that the users are going to be liable for whatever they do. If they commit a crime or a tort, they should be
0: liable for that under standard first principles. So Section 230 was enacted in 1996 as part of the 96 Telecommunications Act uh, legislative package. And usually statutes like this, if they're so important they might get up to the Supreme Court eventually for some clarification or a debate over what they actually mean. Has uh, the statute had Supreme Court level clarification or what level of authority do we have in understanding what Section 230 means?
1: So it has never been interpreted by the Supreme Court. Uh, There have been uh, countless appeals of Section 230 cases to the Supreme Court Uh, I don't know how many. I can think of a dozen or so off the top of my head. And the Supreme Court has denied all of those. Now, there's certainly been statements about Section 230 coming from Justice Thomas, who is aware of it and clearly going to be cynical about it. So we know that there's been discussion about it within the chambers. Um, But in terms of actual opinions from the Supreme Court, Um, As statements of a majority, we've never had anything like that. So this is going to break new ground no matter what. It's going to resolve any possible confusion that might be existing at the district court level where we've seen some really inconsistent results. I don't think there's clear conflict at the appellate court level, but to the extent that appellate courts are reading it in different ways, more or less expansively, uh, the
0: Supreme Court's likely to harmonize those as well. Yeah, it's uh, worth noting you uh, mentioned Justice Thomas. I think it was two years ago in an opinion he noted. He called Section 230 an increasingly important statute for the internet. And uh, I think it's a uh, curious uh, 2019, 2020 to be referring to Section 230, which has been foundational for the growth of the internet over the last 25 years or so as an increasingly important statute for the internet. This
1: might be an example of many where the Supreme Court statement about the facts or the technology might not be designed to tell the truth. It might be designed
0: to tell a narrative. So the issue in the Gonzalez. And let's focus on the Gonzalez case. Uh Tomna raises similar issues, but I think as you explained it, it's really focused on a separate statute and they've been consolidated. So uh, we'll probably be discussed. The 230 issues will be discussed in terms of the Gonzalez case. So can you explain what's going on in that case and how this raises uh, Section 230?
1: Yeah, both uh, cases involve very similar sets of facts. There was a a spate of lawsuits, I counted, I believe 20 or more, that alleged that social media services were facilitating terrorist attacks by allowing the terrorists to have accounts, to talk online, and in some cases, recruit new members of the organization, or even to inspire them to commit terrorist attacks. So both the Gonzalez and Tomna cases involve terrorist attacks that were committed, where the plaintiffs allege that the social media services were an integral player in that terrorist attack because the terrorists had been using the social media service. So the Gonzalez case focuses on the YouTube service, the Tomna case focuses on Twitter. In each case, the allegation is terrorists uh, were there. and dot, 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 they were
0: there for an integral cause of the terrorist attack. And Section 230 comes up because the platforms, Google, which owns YouTube and Twitter, they're saying, this content is user generated. We didn't generate it. So Section 230 shields us from liability for having this troubling content.
1: Correct. Right. As I said, Section 230 says websites aren't liable for third-party content. So the extent that terrorists are publishing content on Twitter or YouTube, No matter how vile it might be,
0: presumptively Section 230 uh, would apply to it. They shouldn't be liable for what the terrorists are saying. So I'm going to throw the softball straw man at you. Uh, Professor Goldman, surely you don't support terrorism. Uh, No. However, I will point out, as uncomfortable as it might be, some
1: of what the terrorists are saying may be protected by the First Amendment. And this is a really essential point for people to understand because the counter-narrative against terrorists is that many of those people who object to the fact that terrorists played a role in these terrorist attacks will also object to the idea that the services would intervene with respect to First Amendment-protected content. And it leads to this inevitable conundrum that if terrorist speech is nevertheless protected by the First Amendment, it's possible that we don't even want the services to be intervening with respect to that speech. That when the services exercise their editorial control over it, they're actually then downplaying First Amendment protected content. So it's not really about whether or not a person supports terrorists, it's really more about, do we believe that terrorists have First Amendment protected rights to speak? And if they do, as counterintuitive as it sounds, then we have to wonder, about a legal system that would require that removal.
0: Yeah. So at at some level, there's a question, how do we identify what constitutes terrorist speech or other problematic speech or hate speech or distasteful speech or speech that the owners of a platform may or may not like, or that the owners of a platform are using to organize or draw users to the platform. And I'll I'll just ask that as a question, how do we differentiate, or how do platforms differentiate between different types of First Amendment protected speech?
1: So I don't quite organize the discussion that way. So let me tell you how I organize it, and you'll see how I think we get at the answer to your question. There's really three categories of content that services are dealing with. There's the category content that's illegal, there's a category of content that is not illegal, or you could say is protected by the First Amendment. I'm fine either way of saying it, and that the services nevertheless find objectionable for their audience. And then there's the third category, which is content that is legal and that the services feel is appropriate for their audience. So, what we generally want is we want the services to remove illegal content. We generally are agnostic about how the services handle the content that they think is fit for their audience, because they're going to want to share it anyway. And we're really focused on this middle ground, this content that is protected by the First Amendment, but the services nevertheless conclude is not fit for their audience. What are some of the things in that category? That could include things like pornography. Some services may say pornography is protected by the First Amendment, but it's not appropriate for my audience in the following circumstances or at all it could include things like hate speech, where people are talking to each other in in incivil ways. The Constitution might protect those statements, even as vile as they are, and yet the services might conclude that that's not fit for their audience. They don't want that level of discourse on their service. and So the real battle has been over this, what we might call lawful but awful speech, speech that service objects to, but nevertheless is protected by the, the First Amendment. And the general partisan split has become that the Democrats or liberals want the services to nevertheless remove that content and maybe be obligated to do so. And the Republican or conservative talking point has become that the services should not have the power to remove it if it's protected by the
0: First Amendment. And from a First Amendment perspective, both of those kind of sound troubling to me.
1: Yes, that's 100% correct, and let me restate it. It turns out that censorship is a bipartisan concept. Both parties love censorship, they just don't agree on what censorship they want. So this middle zone of lawful but objectionable or lawful but awful content, the fact that both parties want to tell services what they must do, we should object to that on principle. Neither of them should have the right to say that. And Interestingly enough, that's essentially what Section 230 says. Section 230 essentially says, you can decide what level of awful content you want to cite, anywhere from zero to 100, and the law will give you protection for that. So Section 230 is actually the bypass or the workaround to this otherwise partisan gridlock, where the parties are
0: agreeing that they like censorship, they just want different forms of censorship. So what if a platform knows that there is speech content being put up onto its platform by users and that content could be legally actionable, even if it's First Amendment protected speech. So turning to uh, some of the speech uh, allegedly at issue in these cases, incitements to violence or terrorism related speech. How does that affect what the platforms should be doing or how they should be thinking about this? It sounds
1: so easy. Like, OK, when an item of content comes through, it comes through with flashing neon light saying this is terrorist content that's not protected by the First Amendment. And if that were true, we would expect the services to intervene and take care of it. That's not the way it presents itself. And let's give a most obvious example. An organization like the Taliban, we classify as a terrorist organization. They are also the functioning government of Afghanistan. So if anything that relates to Afghanistan government is being published online, it's coming from the Taliban. What are we supposed to do in a circumstance like that? Things like beheading videos are awful, and I would be happy never to see a beheading video in my life. And yet, the Constitution might very well protect that. It's a form of speech. It's a statement. It's a terrible statement, one I hope people don't make. And yet, that's not the measure for the Constitution. Um, So this idea about knowledge, when a service knows there's a problem, what do they have to do? Section 230 generally says that the services aren't liable even if they know. But the brilliance of that is actually the problems with determining if content is legally objectionable or not. That effort is the whole ballgame. That's what content moderation is all about. And it's an imperfect science. And section 23 says, we're not going to get into the nuances of when a service knows or doesn't know anything and what kind of inferential or circumstantial evidence you're going to introduce to show that they should have or could have known about this. None of that matters. And that's why Section 230 has become so foundational. Because if we get into those very epistemological questions, what does someone know and when, we know that the ball game is lost.
0: Let's turn to what you think is going to happen in the Gonzalez and uh, Tomna cases. Let's talk about the Gonzalez question
1: presented, because it's a really interesting question presented. The Supreme Court said, this is a question that we want to opine about. The plaintiff alleged that there's a thing called traditional editorial functions that when a service performs them are covered by Section 230. And then there's a thing called algorithmic recommendations, which the plaintiff alleges is not a traditional editorial function and therefore is not covered by Section 230. Now, that question presented has got all kinds of problems, but the most important one is this concept that there's a thing called traditional editorial functions and that's what Section 230 covers. Now, this invites a lot of mischief. As we know, the Supreme Court loves to talk about tradition and what people were doing in 1790. Well, and I'll tell you there was no online content moderation in 1790. So if the Supreme Court wants to go all textualist on this, then they could simply say there was nothing that resembles online content moderation in 1790, there is nothing called a traditional editorial function, and Section 230 covers nothing. So the question presented invites some very deep mischief, but I find it incoherent to think that there's this thing called algorithmic recommendations, and that's somehow different than whatever we're going to call a traditional editorial function. Publishers do three things. They gather, organize, and present or disseminate content. And the algorithmic recommendations is just one of the many ways a service can present content. So you asked the question, what's going to happen in the Gonzalez case? And let me give you the kind of range of outcomes. One outcome is the court says, strikes down Section 230, either saying it's unconstitutional, which is not really question presented, but they don't care, or that they say it never applies to any of the circumstances that we're addressing. Therefore, Section 230 is gutted. Congress, if you don't like our interpretation, fix it. They could say that Google slash YouTube wins, But they could say it in a way that says that YouTube was engaging in Section 230 protected activity in this circumstance, but there's a wide range of other circumstances that are not covered. So even though the defendant wins, Section 230 still gets gutted, and we still end up with a a strategic loss for the internet. A third scenario is that the Supreme Court fractures, and we get a hairball of opinions that have no consistent holding with each other, and then they leave it to the lower courts to to figure it out, which would be a terrible outcome because right now we don't have that. Right now we have consistency generally in the appellate interpretations of Section 230. The Supreme Court could blow that away. And there's one and only one scenario where actually we get the internet as it looks today, and that's where the court says YouTube wins, And Section 230 has been interpreted roughly correctly in a clean enough way that doesn't invite the mischief of courts trying to find an exclusion to what the Supreme Court said. If we don't get that, this case will be a strategic loss for the Internet.
0: And you can see why I'm panicked. Yep. Just given, as you say, the question presented, uh, it's hard to see how the court is going to get to that conclusion. it's clearly being presented to focus on algorithmic decision making. And we, we should say, algorithmic decision making isn't some magic pixie dust sort of thing. Effectively, every journalistic enterprise that has exercised editorial discretion, they've done it according to some rule book. They have some editorial values, they've got some standards for what content they're going to uh, uh, publish or reject. That's an algorithm. Just because it's some AI machine learning thing, it it still is fundamentally a way of exercising uh, discretion over what content is going on to your platform.
1: A hundred percent. And let's take that further. Let's talk about a traditional print publisher like a newspaper. There may be codified guidelines, but at minimum, there are informal understandings about how many words a particular article will get whether it should be on the front page, in the middle, or on the back page, and how big the font should be in the headline. All of these were formulas or rules or guidelines to help decide how to present content to readers in a way that would help prioritize some content over others. You cannot publish a newspaper without making those judgments. And you could make it up every single time from scratch, but that's not how publishers actually work. So this idea about algorithmic recommendations really just is another fancy way, as you said, of describing what publishers have done all along. They've always made these decisions how to present information to their audience. And so raising that as a distinction from traditional editorial functions is fundamentally incoherent. And it would be great if the Supreme Court said it. If they don't, bad things are likely to ensue.
0: So let's talk about other bad things are likely to ensue cases. Florida and Texas. Can you tell us what's going on here?
1: Florida and Texas both enacted laws that were what I call MAGA laws. These were laws that were designed to appeal to the voters who support the Make America Great philosophies. and We call those typically something like messaging bills. They're bills designed to just tell the voters, we hear you, we love you, we're paying attention to your interests, but they're not actually designed to pass. They're just to get the crowd cheering. So both Florida and Texas passed MAGA messaging bills that cover a wide range of different ways of controlling conversations online. I can't get into all the details, but let me just give you a few highlights or lowlights depending on your perspective. Both of the bills try to govern the process of content moderation. So in the Florida bill, it says that the content moderation must be done, quote, consistently. And in the Texas bill, it's framed as it must be done in a viewpoint neutral manner. And the idea is they're trying to say that if the Democrats are getting favorable content moderation, the Republicans should get no less favorable content moderation. So, you know, basically treat both parties equally. But that's not what they said. And they couldn't really say that. What they really say is, If there's any viewpoint discrepancy about a topic, you have to treat both viewpoints or all viewpoints as equally legitimate. So it isn't just Democrats versus Republicans. It's also the Libertarian Party. It's also the Green Party. It's also the Nazi Party. They all have to be treated consistently or they all have to be treated in a viewpoint-neutral manner. So take a subject like vaccinations what the law says, if you're publishing pro-vax content, you have to treat the anti-vax content equally. So, it says there might not be a scientific debate on a topic, but as long as people are still disagreeing with each other, you have to treat both as equally legitimate. This is just flat-out censorship. There's no ambiguity about it. It's saying, you don't have discretion decide what's fit for your audience. We're going to tell you, if you pick topic A, you must pick topic not A and maybe A and A is a completely stupid question. They all have to be treated equally. You don't get a choice about that. And
0: it's kind of like the fairness doctrine
1: on steroids. It really is back to the fairness doctrine. And it's so baffling because the conservatives waged such a bitter war to ultimately kill the fairness doctrine. That was one of the big crowning achievements of the Reagan era. And here we are again The Republicans are the ones who are saying, let's impose a fairness doctrine onto the internet. And one of the reasons why the fairness doctrine was ultimately scuttled and so bitterly opposed by conservatives is they felt like they didn't get a great deal under that. And the idea of embracing, again, they're not going to get what they want. They didn't learn any of the lessons from the fairness doctrine. I do want to mention one other major chunk of the laws, um, because this is the part that I'm weighing in on. Both of the Texas and Florida laws have what I call editorial transparency requirements. They require the services to publish information about their editorial operations and decisions. This is something we haven't seen in the offline world. We don't ever tell newspapers, you have to tell us what stories you kiboshed, and you got to tell us why you kiboshed them, or you don't have to tell us how many letters you received and why you chose not to publish them. But these laws require all that and more. and. In both the 11th Circuit and the 5th Circuit, which split on the question about whether or not the outright censorship was permissible, the 11th Circuit said it wasn't, the 5th Circuit said MAGA, both of them agreed that the editorial transparency provisions did not raise a problem. But that's what I'm going to be weighing in on, and I'm going to be explaining to the court why actually editorial transparency is a Trojan horse for censorship. It's going to lead to the same censorship that flat-out explicit censorship leads to, And they need to understand why their precedents both don't require that. And actually, that's terrible
0: policy. And it's also somewhat incoherent. We don't need that sort of requirement for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, because we know why they print certain types of content, because they're allowed to have a editorial voice and perspective. And we let them and we let the marketplace play it out. And, you know, the same thing goes for platforms. If it turns out that Twitter has an editorial perspective built into its algorithms, YouTube has one, uh, Mastodon or certain Mastodon instances have editorial perspectives built in, people figure that out and they affiliate with and are drawn to different sources of information or different platforms based upon the marketplace and the marketplace of ideas. And what we're really saying, or what these laws are really saying, is you can't have that. Everyone needs neutrality, and neutrality doesn't exist.
1: Yes, and actually, it would reduce or shrink the diversity of the different kinds of social media options that are out there. If they're having to operate under these rules, it's quite likely that they would homogenize and have to follow the same editorial standards across all the services where today there are differences. So for example, there are conservative alternatives to the perception that some of the other social media services like Twitter, historically pre-Musk, were too liberal. So there's Gab and Parler and True Social. They were all designed to say, here's an alternative perspective in the marketplace, and decide which ones you like better. And what we're seeing, of course, in the post-Musk Twitter era is that a bunch of people are saying, this doesn't work for me anymore. And they're literally checking out. And that kind of market mechanism is the kind of thing that we used to just assume was going to be sufficient to discipline publishers. If they want to go and cater to their audience and their audience doesn't like how they're catering, that's a problem. But Florida and Texas have said, no, we're going to take control of the situation. We're going to tell you what you must do. That's just flat out censorship.
0: So we are... Coming up on the end of our time pretty quickly, I I want to ask, I'm not going to ask for more prognostication, assuming that likely outcomes happen in these cases, uh, by which I will prognosticate anti-230, anti-Internet decisions, as you would interpret them, uh, are what we get. How is that going to affect the field? What, what are you going to do with your class next year? <laughs>
1: um, so just to be clear, you know, uh, you didn't want prognostication, but I do want to say a few words about that. In order for the Internet to continue to function the way that we're currently enjoying it today, we have to win all four of the cases. And we have to win them in language that doesn't invite the mischief and is clear enough that there's not these fractured set of opinions. If you were to say, what are the odds that the Supreme Court is going to get it perfectly on four cases? I don't like those odds. I really am nervous that one or more of those is going to change the way that we think about the internet. And the consequence of that, you know, as I said earlier, I'm panicked about this because it's going to impact the way that we talk to each other online. The future of the internet is going to look a lot like what I call a Netflix-type environment. What's going to happen is there's going to be more paywalls with professionally produced content where the publisher decides what they think their audience wants without the audience being able to talk to each other. So we're going to have to pay for that content, stuff that we might get for free. It's going to be selected for us, not us deciding what we think is of uh, interest to us and it's going to perpetuate a bunch of digital divides and uh, power dynamics that we currently are concerned about. It's going to raise the digital divide higher by costing more, and it's going to continue to provide voices or audiences for people who currently have existing power. So the end of the user-generated content era of the Internet is very close and it could be over by June 2023. And In its place, there will still be an Internet, will still go online, But we won't be talking to each other, we'll be talked to
0: by people who are broadcasting or publishing content at us. So it sounds like uh, maybe there was something to the net neutrality concerns, but we just had the wrong focus Um, with with, uh, discussions of net neutrality and paid prioritization and all of that stuff.
1: Well, the focus wasn't on the idea that the government could just flat out censor online publishers of uh, user-generated content. But here we are in 2022, going to 2023, where that's on the table. The Overton window has clearly included yep. that.
0: Yep. Any last thoughts or closing remarks you want to leave us with? Yo,
1: know, I, I don't mean to spook uh, your listeners, but I will tell them that some of these things might be fixable in Congress. So, for example, if the Supreme Court works Section 230, Congress could fix that in theory but they're not going to fix it. They're only going to double down and make it worse so long as they think that we want them to continue to bash the internet companies. So the tech lash is actually driving both the Supreme Court's antipathy and Congress's antipathy. And we need to tell the people who are supposed to be working for us on our tax dollars that that's not what we want. And they're not hearing it. And as a result, it's created a very fertile environment for censorship.
0: Well, Eric, I usually feel better after talking to you. I'm not sure today if uh, that's the case, but uh, th- thank you nonetheless for taking the time. And I hope that you're wrong, but I think that a lot needs to go right for uh, you not to be. And I'll just pontificate for a moment and say 230 is so important and the Internet is so important and has done so much. But the tech clash, as you call it, it's a real phenomenon. There is a widespread concern and anger about big tech and the technology companies on the left and very much on the right. And the puzzle for me, the thing that keeps me up at night is how has this happened? Why has this happened? Could it have not happened? Is there something about the business models or how the industry has run itself or in how we've advocated or how advocates on the left or the right but spoken about the fields over the years or or whatever, because something's driven it. And understanding what's driven it, I think, is uh, really important for uh, folks like you and me to be thinking about. I, I know we're over time, but I do want to remark on that, because it actually ties
1: together our entire conversation. What I think has happened is that, as the digital natives have grown up, they have not made a distinction between the social ills that they experience offline and the social ills that they've experienced online. So cyberbullying, as when they were younger, they blame that on the internet not on the fact that people are just awful to each other and so as that generation comes into power they're coming with the presumption that it's the internet to blame for all the experiences that they had growing up that they objected to they don't know how rare and special the internet is and they don't know how bad things were in the offline world when we didn't have the internet they've never experienced it all they know is that they were cyberbullied when they were younger or they experienced other kinds of harm that the internet uh, should be held accountable for. And so as long as we see this merging of the internet and the offline world, and as long as the digital natives are the ones who are not recognizing what life was like in a different environment, they think that they can fix social harms by fixing the internet. And you and I both know that ain't gonna work, but until they realize that, actually they're likely to do far more harm to society than they think.
0: Yep, like democracy. The internet's great if you can keep it. Yes, always a pleasure. Thanks, Gus. My thanks to Eric for taking the time to talk to us today. Listeners might note that this is the second recent discussion that we've had about Section 230. I recently spoke with my colleagues here at the University of Nebraska, Kyle Langbart and James Tierney, about some issues relating to Twitter and also cryptocurrency that touched on Section 230 and similar topics. And we're going to have at least one more discussion on this topic because this is a really important issue. But don't worry, we have some other topics coming up as well from drones to copyright law in the 19th century. So stay tuned for those as well. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleegi is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL NGTC.